0: Understand that it's warming, it's us. We are sure it's bad. We can fix it. You understand enough science to have a voice at the table.
1: Welcome to the Net Zero Life a podcast for climate-focused individuals looking to learn the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Professor Kimberly Nicholas from Lund University on perspectives from a climate scientist. We're three and a half seasons into the net-zero life, and I'm incredibly excited to welcome our first climate scientist on the pod. In conjunction with her research in sustainability, Kimberly is an author of a book and a weekly newsletter informing individuals on how to deliver the impacts humanity needs to reach net-zero emissions. We're three and a half seasons into the net-zero life, and I'm incredibly excited to welcome our first climate scientist on the pod. In conjunction with her research in sustainability, Kimberly is an author of a book and a weekly newsletter informing individuals on how to deliver the impacts humanity needs to reach net-zero emissions. She began her study of climate science and the impacts of human-induced climate change on the environment in 2003, when, in her words, climate change was a problem for future generations. In the nearly 20 years since, she's navigated both a warming world and new expectations for academics. Where previously, Kimberly and her peers solely communicated among themselves, they no longer have that luxury. Confronted with the current impacts of climate change, communicating her research with diverse groups of stakeholders is just another part of Kimberly's job as a sustainability expert. She's published over 55 articles in climate and sustainability in leading peer-reviewed journals. She writes for publications such as Elle, The Guardian, Scientific American, and New Scientist. In her book, Under the Sky We Make, Kimberly navigates this new world, writing for academics and us regular people alike. Dr. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm super lucky for a number of reasons, but in particular that that I get to spend an hour with you um, because, I'm embarrassed to say this, I think you are the first climate scientist on the show.
0: Woo-hoo!
1: Which is embarrassing because yeah, I think we're at 35 episodes or around that number when this goes live. And so it's about damn time is kind of what I'm thinking. Um, so thank you honored. so much for spending time today. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah. As are we, as are the listeners uh lots of great places to start but because of your beautiful background which for listeners who can't see contains a number of books um i thought we could start by talking about books and in particular you cre- curated a list of books from 2021 that you recommended but in general uh what are some of your favorite books on climate you've been in the space for quite some time um and which we'll cover during the show but are there any books that stand out for you as uh, as you think about your your history of reading
0: Sure. I mean, two pretty recent ones that I loved. Uh, One was Generation Dread by Britt Ray. And that's a book about someone who pivoted in, you know, kind of... Britt really pivoted her career to focus full-time on climate. And I'm really inspired by how quickly and successfully she was able to do that. And I think she's now working on Uh, basically how to stay sane in the climate and wider ecological crisis. So she focuses a lot on the mental health aspects, which is so important and opens so many doors for really critical conversations. And I think her book is really beautifully written. And from a first person perspective of her own struggles with overwhelming and really debilitating climate anxiety and how she's basically managed to cope with that and find ways of harnessing that as a propelling her towards her purpose and working for climate. So I think that's a really excellent and very timely and and helpful read.
1: And then did you say that there's two books?
0: Well, another one that jumped to mind is a book of climate fiction. I'm a big fan of Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, I've read a number of his books. Uh, A recent one was New York 2140. And, or actually, that's true. But I think even that was one of my favorite climate fiction books, and I have it on my shelf behind me here. But even... More recent and more compelling than that, I would say, was, um, uh, oh my gosh, what is his latest book called? Now I'm totally blanking on it. The Ministry for the Future? Yeah, thank you. (laughs) This book I'm recommending, this title I can't even remember. (laughs) Yes, thank you. The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. That is a tough, um, I mean, there needs, book, there needs to be like a trigger warning for the first chapter. It's not good bedtime reading, Um, but I thought it was so interesting and engaging and just opened up a lot of doors i mean unlike a lot of climate fiction it the premise is that it basically starts essentially from today and envisions a path forward which is not utopian but it's also not dystopian and you know spoiler alert we end up fixing climate change humans end up stabilizing the climate and there are losses but there are also big wins and unexpected alliances and i think it's really interesting and and empowering to be able to envision that world and one pathway to get there as a way of opening up our thinking and our doing to actually start following a pathway that gets us there.
1: Yeah, which is a great pivot. Your book kind of does something similar. So you're you're the author of Under the Sky We Make, which everyone should go read. But your book does something similar. We kind of start on here's the here's the picture of where we are today. Um, part one, part two is like it's okay to have bad, bad feelings, but part three is how we fix it. Um, and let me know if I mischaracterize that at any point. I obviously did not write the book. You did. Um, but and, and then I think you you also mentioned climate anxiety and and Brit as well. And so there there's. On the one hand, I think for the listener, there's this perspective of, oh man, we're kind of screwed. On the other hand, it's kind of this like beautiful narrative. um, or potential narrative like humanity identified the largest possible problem that affects the most people in the entire world and we like really should have fixed it a long time ago but here we have an opportunity to fix it and then the like the story might end hopefully ends that we do fix it so as you think about your own um like as you go through day to day and how do you manage and where do you fall in terms of like we're royally screwed to like we're totally gonna fix this and everything in between
0: you know well thank you first i'll say i think that's a perfect characterization of the book, so I fully stand behind it. Um, I actually don't spend much time thinking about those outcomes, I have to say. I think I spent more time earlier, but one thing I am learning is that I work better if I focus on the work that needs to be done and align that with what needs to happen in the long term and what works for me personally and what aligns with my values. And give myself self uh also space and time to kind of take care of myself, my physical and mental health, spend time with loved ones, do the stuff that matters. That is an ongoing work in progress for sure. Um, But yeah, I guess I I've realized that I it's not um productive for me to spend a lot of time dwelling on outcomes because I and no one else on Earth has the power to control the ultimate outcome of human-caused climate change, right? Like, it's not going to be entirely up to me what temperature humanity stabilizes the global climate at. So I can't make that my metric of success. I want to be doing everything that I can to work for the lowest possible amount of warming because that will mean the least harm, the most good, the best possible outcomes for all the people and places that I care about. Um, so yeah, I guess I don't like prognosticate on, you know, are we 82% likely to succeed or fail at this, which measure, um, it doesn't really matter because I want to do the work anyway and I need, the work needs to be done anyway.
1: Yeah. You know, chopping down the uh, tree, although not necessarily a good metaphor, but chopping down the tree one, one swing at a time. We've talked a little bit about how you move the world closer to net zero. And I think we'll, we'll circle back there later in terms of both through your science work and your book and why you chose to write a book. But let's go back in time a little bit 2000 early 2000s you are pursuing a PhD at Stanford uh, in environmental science or climate science you tell me what it was called at that point what is the general feelings around um, climate change and understanding of climate change at that time? How, like the, What's the broader population, or sort of the public consensus about it? It's obviously a different narrative 20 years later. Al Gore's in- An Inconvenient Truth comes out in 2006, so you're predating that. Um, yeah, tell the listeners a little about what's kind of going on and, and what it's like for you to be studying climate change in the early 2000s in California.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago, and I think um, it definitely felt more distant than it does now. I mean, it felt like something that was going to happen in the future to other people. And I don't think I really realized I'm also going to be a part of that future and it is going to happen to me. And I, of course, have a lot of privilege that insulates me from some of the worst effects, but I've also experienced a lot of climate loss personally. Of, I mean, the most uh, close to heart is my family's experience in the wildfires of California, which have been made about twice as big and um, longer-lasting by human-caused climate change. So my parents and then my sister and her family were evacuated in 2017. Um, That was just, I mean, I get chills thinking about it. It was really terrifying to be afraid for their lives, and thankfully they're safe and even their homes were also safe, although that wasn't clear for quite some time, if that was going to be the case. And there were thousands of other people who were not that lucky that year. So it, it really hits, you know, that was where it was impossible to say that climate change is something in the future. And I mean, I even have, I found this essay that I wrote, you know, you asked about the early 2000s, going back even further, I think it was 1991. So I was in like, seventh grade, there were. I didn't have access to the internet or there basically was no internet. I had a local public library and some magazines that came to my parents' house. And I wrote this essay about climate change. I called it the greenhouse effect. And I, there's this line that basically says it's caused by burning fossil fuels. And in the next century will cause a warming that will cause all these effects, you know, melting ice, rising crop losses, um, harm to people and nature. And I thought <laughs> 12 year old with like a three-to-one contact magazine, you know, like a, a magazine for kids. And I think, I think I cited good housekeeping in my reference list. Like I didn't have a lot to go on, but even then, and so more than 30 years ago, we knew the basic facts. So that is just, um, really hard to live with actually to, to know that there's been this catastrophe coming at us and that we haven't done enough and that there've been, you know, organized forces trying to prevent action and actually locking in a lot more harm than was necessary. So that's actually really tough.
1: If you think about your experience um, at Stanford and then compare it to students' experiences now going through climate programs or climate PhD programs or environmental PhD programs, what has changed either from the science perspective or the general narrative perspective?
0: I think it's really different. I think, I mean, I feel like my students are running into a building that's on fire and they know that. So it is probably attracting a different kind of person and maybe a person who's um, more knowing what they're signing up for, <laughs> although no one can maybe know fully. But I think the scale and the nature of the crisis as this is a crisis is, 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 is common knowledge now and certainly for our students very much uh you know baked into their understanding of the world and how they see the world and the reason and motivation for them to do this work and i have to say that wasn't true for me when i was their age i mean i um love hiking in the mountains and when i was an undergrad at stanford i had the chance to do that as a research assistant and and um, make a thousand dollars from doing it, and which seemed, you know, like an incredible deal. I can do the thing I think is most fun and get paid for it. And then I discovered I really liked research. But what we were doing in that um, group back in 1995 was measuring plants that were moving uphill because of climate change. So as the world warms, these plants were trying to stay in the niche where they thrive the best and move up to, you know, previously cooler areas that now were. Uh, Right at the line where they wanted to be. So, I mean, already then we could see if you were looking for it, you could see the fingerprints of climate change. But I think for most people, it wasn't part of their daily lived reality. And it was a lot more abstract and theoretical feeling, I think, than it feels now for my students
1: one aspect or one lens that i view your work is is playing the specific voice in the climate activism world of focusing on the individual which is not um, and in individual's actions, again, but it's not necessarily a common tactic people take and specifically couching people to make decisions, individual decisions, um, to reduce their own carbon footprint. It comes through in the book. Um, you obviously do a lot of work outside of that through your research um, and through your teaching. Um, but if that's a correct characterization, can you tell me a little bit about how you got to that work and why you chose to focus on that area?
0: Sure, I think it's um, partly correct. So I do focus a lot on the individual level, especially for high-income individuals who live in countries like the U.S. and Sweden, where I am from and and now live, respectively, who have caused a lot of the emissions and who have a lot of the tools and power at our disposal to actually make this fast and fair transition to a fossil-free world happen, and I think have a responsibility to do so. So that did start um, around 2014 was when I started focusing my research on high-impact climate action at the personal and kind of consumption level. But pretty quickly thereafter, and and definitely now, I've really diversified into focusing still largely on individual action, although I I do also work at, for example, the EU level with uh, agricultural policy. I'm working a lot on the national level with Swedish climate policy. We have an election here in a couple weeks. So I I am doing work at other levels. But the individual level, I've really broaden my scope beyond the consumer, and I think that's a really important step to take, is that individual action doesn't have to just be, what are the things I can do at home or in my own lifestyle? Those of us who are high emitters do need to look at our overconsumption, and that is important, and there are reasons that it connects to system change. We can also, at the same time, look at our roles as role models, as investors, as professionals, and as citizens. And through those five roles, including consumption, those are where we actually have, I mean, I call them our five climate superpowers. That's where we have the potential as individuals to catalyze and contribute to collective and systemic change.
1: I'd love to go through the five roles. And for those who want more, they should go read the book. Um, but also, if you can give us a preview of your journey, like when you made that pivot um, from focusing on individual action to more collective and system action. And like if there's anything that was influencing you at that time, was there a specific catalyst or moment?
0: think actually the catalyst is probably frustration with the characterization of individual and system action as being a dichotomy because I really think it paralyzes a lot of necessary action. Um, and maybe this is only a question on climate Twitter in a very small part of the bubble that actually isn't that influential, but it was dominating a lot of the places that I was spending my working hours and, and, and a lot of conversations I was having. So that said, so if you talk to kind of people who are trying to move towards net zero, whether they're climate scientists or activists or anyone in that world, um, there's a lot of discussion about individual and collective action and agency. If you talk to people who are not in that world so the people who come to my talks the people who reach out to me on social media the people who ask questions at you know parties when they hear about my work that is not a question they have in their mind the question that most people have in their mind is is there anything i can do or what can i do everything feels so big and overwhelming and far away in time and space and difficult and i know that governments and businesses are not doing their jobs and i feel like if they aren't doing their jobs, that nothing I can do really matters. So I'm really speaking to those people because those are actually the majority of people in places like the U.S., which really need to be galvanizing and leading climate action. And I think getting those people on board to doing useful climate work is what is actually going to unlock the potential for transformative system change.
1: And can you give us an example, or, or um, maybe tell tell the listener a little about like what those individual actions look like again for people who like want you know specifically come to you with that question? I think there are loads of people who are listening here who feel the same way and would love to hear your thoughts on what they can do as individuals.
0: Sure. Well, I'm actually I can share. I'm working on a personalized climate action guide that will. Kind of take people on a choose-your own adventure journey, really methodically through this process, so that you actually get to your own personal highest impact action. But in a Cliff's Notes version, uh, if you earn over thirty-eight thousand dollars US per year, you're among the ten percent richest people on Earth, and you are like me in the group of people who cause half of household climate pollution. So we are a group that actually does really need to look at our own footprint and our own consumption and reduce especially our flying and driving. We will not make the climate transition in a fast and fair way in time to avoid catastrophic climate change without really reducing hypermobility from flying and driving by that group. Um, the other, so that's those are the two highest impact in that order. If you fly, that's the biggest source of your personal emissions and reduce that as much as possible. If you drive for most Americans, that's the largest source of climate pollution and reduce that as much as possible. Um, And then uh, the third high-impact personal action there is eating plants instead of meat, so uh, going to a plant-based diet. And that is numerically a smaller amount of emissions reductions than those other two, but it's the biggest action for biodiversity. So that saves the most land and water and other resources for nature, which is also super important and part of solving climate change
1: hundred um, percent. And for people who feel like that's ridiculously difficult, um, myself included, you know, I love to fly. I was an aerospace engineer. I worked on aviation and it's something that I personally grapple with and haven't figured out. Uh, if you have any thoughts um, specifically around flying, I'd love to hear them. Um, but also just for the general listener, like know that it's okay uh, to not have it figured out.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, research shows that you're not alone, that most people find Uh, Most people who fly, which already it's important to realize, are a really small global minority. So most people on Earth have never been on a plane. I think there's circles of which I'm certainly a part where it's really normalized and taken for granted and seen as a default. But that is actually globally unusual. But I was certainly in that group where in 2010, I took 15 round trip flights. So that puts me in this group of 1% of the world's population who take half of the flights on Earth. And there are a lot of injustices around climate change, but the general principle is often it's the people who've caused the most emissions who suffer the least and or, you know, are not the first line of impact. And that's very much the case with, you know, generally the wealthiest and the most privileged who have had the opportunity to fly the most. So I also, you know, love travel, love adventure. I took a job Sorry, I took a job across the world for my family, um, not really thinking about the carbon impacts or the lock-in that I was getting into there, but thinking, okay, flights are cheap and, you know, I'll come home regularly. Um, and I really want to be a professor and academic jobs are really tough to get. And this is the job I got offered in Sweden and I'm going to take it. So I kind of put myself I, a little bit, felt like I had painted myself into a corner where I knew that flying was the biggest part of my carbon footprint, but I wasn't willing to look at it because I felt like I couldn't um, imagine stopping flying because I was wanted to see my family. And I didn't see a way to do that without flying f- between Sweden and California. But at the same time, I really was facing a lot of cognitive dissonance. And it kind of came to a head when I was at a climate conference in 2012, where I had flown there to participate. My friend Charlie had taken the train. He lived about an equal distance away. We spent, you know, 12 hours in a windowless room getting barraged with depressing PowerPoints about how urgent and serious the climate crisis is and was and would be and all the things we need to do to change. And yet I kind of felt like I was a doctor in a conference of doctors puffing on cigarettes and telling our patients to quit. So it just I couldn't deal with the cognitive dissonance anymore, basically. And over a year, Charlie and I discussed it and he had stopped flying uh, within Europe so that was something we discussed. And I realized that was something I could do. I could stop flying within my continent. I could be a lot more thoughtful about the travel I did and reduce that. Think about if things were really worth it for me to, to actually physically travel, um, both in terms of the carbon and in terms of the time, because it does take longer to get places if you don't fly. Uh, and then, That ended up reducing my flying more than 90%. So I haven't stopped flying entirely, but I have found ways to really reduce my flying. And it actually opened a lot of doors that I wouldn't have expected that have been really positive, including a very romantic fourth date on a 15-hour train trip to Paris with my future husband, you know, my now husband, (laughs) um, which was a great uh, introduction. And then we did our wedding basically by train. So he's from Edmonton, near Edmonton in Canada, and I'm from California. We have friends all over. We thought, okay, we do not want to have a wedding where we invite, you know, 100 plus people to fly in from all over the world and we get to see each of them for five minutes. We will fly. The two of us will fly to go to them. And then they hosted us in small parties all around North America. I think we had 14 different parties over almost a month uh, that were sometimes just two other people, sometimes 15 or 20 or so people Uh, and it was so lovely that we got to travel to them by train meet people where they were people actually built a bit of a community because they were meeting others and actually getting to know the people who were there and that's kind of the an example of the way that actually reducing my flying has given me more connection and adventure and richness of experience that is actually what I sought from travel but didn't realize I could have in other ways.
1: This is so wonderful on so many levels. Um, one, this like, general idea of constraints breed resourcefulness, uh, and how you know we many people in that group thirty eight thousand. Although it would be interesting to unpack that, as um, you know, I think uh, the the income level is greatly impacted by who you who you who your community is and where you live. Right, obviously thirty eight thousand dollars will look different um, in Seattle than it will in. Um, rural area somewhere in the midwest of the united states um but still nonetheless constraints breed resourcefulness and it's so interesting to see how that can be a helpful from, from a happiness perspective i also love this idea of a mechanism of creating a um a constraint like not flying in europe as a tool to um help kind of have that mental switch i you know for me something similar here in the pacific northwest is in the summer um if it's within five miles i bike that's that's oh, my nice. general role yeah yeah um and so i'm curious if you have any other uh and, and i mentioned earlier although maybe we we'll cut that from the show. So I'll put it here too, is that in our house, we don't need any meat. And again, it's an opportunity for us to create, for me and my partner to create a mechanism to reduce our consumption. Um, and then you get in the habit and then it becomes normal. So are there any other tools or techniques that you've heard of that you'd like to share with individuals to help them uh, think about fun or not necessarily fun, but engaging ways to reduce their footprint that are easier than this kind of hard binary zero or one you can, or you can't do it.
0: Yeah. Well, I totally agree with you. And I think the research supports it as well, that having these kind of constraints and especially choosing these kind of constraints, you know, deciding for yourself what those constraints will be that, okay, in this, in our home, we don't prepare meat, for example, um, that really works. And I think one reason it works is it reduces decision fatigue because what I was doing before I decided to stop flying in Europe was, you know, for a year or two, I had been, agonizing over spreadsheets for hours and making all these calculations and all that did was give me analysis paralysis because I was left with a bunch of numbers of, okay, it'll cost this much and take this much time and emit this much carbon. Is that worth it or not? I don't know. So I didn't really, the numbers couldn't really answer the question I was looking for, I guess. Um, So I think it's really helpful to choose a constraint or choose a um, goal to pursue or a rule to follow that makes sense for you because that just makes it so much more sustainable. And as you say, can breed fun. I mean, when I, so I, uh, I don't eat meat and um, my husband doesn't eat meat at home and that actually started really, or it became more consistent when I was invited by some friends to try a vegan challenge for a month. So it was a group of us and we all decided to go vegan for a month and that doing it together. So having a community really helped. We would, you know, text each other recipes. We had each other over for dinner each week, which was really fun and prepared a nice meal and had time together. So again, it created conviviality and togetherness and um, fun in a way that I really value. And also made me realize, oh, this is actually a lot more doable than I thought. And I, I haven't, you know, then there were things that I did add back animal products that I did add back to my diet after that, but I realized, oh, these are things I didn't miss. I definitely can just cut those out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Having a um, having a hard constraint like that it teaches those lessons. Um, there's a number of like interesting diet challenges for people to do. Whether it's paleo, keto, not, not necessarily the people. Not, that's not necessarily uh, condoning that people should go do those. But I've like, spoken to individuals and personally gone through a 30 day challenge and walked away with this understanding of how to do things differently. So absolutely recommend that. We can put it in the show notes some 30 day challenges if you recommend from a climate standpoint. One of the aspects you touch on in the book is the role of scientists and how it's changed or hasn't changed um, from the general purview. So, uh, and again, let me know, I'm going to paraphrase, so let me know if I mischaracterize, but there's this general history of scientists playing neutral third party. We write scientific papers, we we outline the facts, we produce a result, the result goes in a journal, and then we hand that to policymakers or companies or other NGOs to then do what they will. And that, that has changed both for you personally and scientists more generally of scientists writing letters to government saying we are concerned about climate change or we are concerned about the science and stuff like that. So I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what was that like for you being in the environment which um, or the atmosphere of people who are kind of siloed to do one specific job? And now, as that um, if, it, if it's the case, as that lens has shifted, how how do you feel like it's blossomed for, for you as a scientist and you to give you a platform to share both your science and your perspective? Perspective and your narrative, um, along with that silence uh, or along with that science in terms of moving the world closer to net zero?
0: Well, it feels like a huge growth opportunity for me because it really doesn't feel like the job I signed up for, nor the one I was really trained for. So I'm doing my best to rise to the challenge and try to be useful in the ways that I see the world needs basically like, okay, I have these skills now. How can I try to use them in the climate crisis. And I guess, I mean, that's, there's definitely, um, many scientists are wrestling with this right now, but I think many people in general are wrestling with this right now, right? Like, okay, I'm trained as a lawyer or a teacher or, you know, whatever my profession is that gives me a set of skills and credibility in an area and a community and, you know, certain, um, abilities, how can I use those in a way that's useful? So that comes back to this professional role as one of the five climate superpowers. And I guess, I mean, one thing I realized that a science communication workshop that I had the chance to go to in 2017, which was really pivotal for me, I think, and getting me more uh, comfortable in trying to break down this wall and and share more personal stories and make more prescriptive advice of, you know, here's what the science says you should be doing world, <laughs> um, was realizing the power of stories and trying to use the power of stories and storytelling to serve science. And I do think things are changing in scientific expectations in general, but I think it's also more accepted now that you can be a good scientist. You can ask and answer interesting research questions, which is what a scientist does in a way that is transparent and honest and follows, you know, you're clear about your methods and you let others inspect your work and you share that work with the world. If you follow that process, you're doing good science. You also can be a good citizen. You also can try to share those findings with the people who can act on them in formats that are not just peer-reviewed journals behind paywalls that are Difficult for people to access and understand. So I think there's a lot of it. It's good because it's a bigger tent than it was. Um, but it also, you know, the institutions certainly have not caught up in terms of encouraging or rewarding um, doing that kind of work. I think there's a big need for it in the world and people recognize that. But universities have certainly not caught up in sort of making that part of the job description of a scientist and making giving us the time to work on it in our working hours.
1: Yeah, which is an area that I, I, I'd I love to explore in some context for the listener is in 2010, you moved to Sweden, which has a rich history of climate scientists, um, namely Svante Arrhenius, who I think is credited as one of the early discoverers of um, what they called back then carbonic acid or, or CO2, uh, as we call it today, and the impact it has in terms of warming. So from the university perspective, is there, for, for you, is there continuing education, is there training around that broader role that you really i mean from my perspective need to take not you you but like you the scientists need to take to kind of be the seat of the table with the universities with the uh, government organizations with the, um, the board of directors
0: there is some and i'm trying to take advantage of what's out there and i'm also trying to pay it forward and offer what i've learned to um the next generation as well so i mentioned this uh, science communication workshop that I went to, I had the chance to do a number of workshops like that throughout, actually starting in grad school and continuing. Those have been super instrumental for me. Um, This one was called the Vega Fellows and Compass uh, was one of the, Science Communications was one of the leaders. They've also run a bunch of programs, including the Aldo Leopold Leadership Fellows in the U.S. So there are um, programs and fellowships and opportunities for scientists to improve our communication and uh, get better, especially at talking to the media and decision makers, politicians is a big focus of a lot of those programs. So I've tried to take advantage of that and then teach courses, for example, in popular science and academic writing uh, together with an editor from Scientific American. I taught a course on storytelling for science in the climate and ecological emergencies last year with some colleagues here. So trying to basically keep moving the momentum forward in that direction um, and share what I'm learning and hope that it helps others.
1: Are there any specific lessons or philosophies or tools you recommend to the listener about telling narratives around climate uh, or resources they should go read in order to be able to talk about climate, you know, despite not necessarily having an understanding or for sure not having an understanding of climate the way you do, um, but maybe not even having a general understanding, but they still want to talk about this idea at large.
0: Yeah, I think for everyday people, it's really important that you feel empowered to talk about climate change. So I hereby empower you. Please talk about climate change and uh, don't feel like you need to know every last detail of all the latest science in every single report. That doesn't have to be your job. If you understand that it's warming, it's us, we are sure it's bad, we can fix it. You understand enough science to have a voice at the table. And I think where people can be really powerful is in creating genuine conversations, sharing what it is that you care about, and really listening deeply to others and making shared connections over the what you actually have in common. So a specific resource I can really recommend is uh, Climate Outreach, which is a charity in the UK, and they do a lot of research on climate communication. So they have some really effective guides on how to talk about climate change. Um, So really specific about an eight-step program, for example. Um, They also have a good guide on climate visuals. So if you're in a role where you're making a website or you're writing a story or you want to illustrate climate change, they have really good principles about how to center people and uh, what is effective visually. And then they have a library of resources you can use to tell climate stories through a really well research and curated lens. So yeah, climate outreach is great. And there's also the um Yale Center for Climate Communication in the US. They do a lot of research on the pulse of the public in the US basically. It's a little bit less on how to have conversations around it, but if you're interested in diving into you know, who thinks what, um they're also quite good. But climate outreach has more resources for example on saying, what kind of messages resonate with different groups? Um, So they do segmentation into six or seven groups in the UK, for example, and then talk about, you know, what is this group interested in that is in line with climate action? And how can you talk to um, really conservative or really progressive people about climate change? Because guess what? Different messages are more successful with those groups.
1: How do you think about um, products and services pairing A green offering when they sell at the transaction level Uh, examples being so Amazon has their climate pledge friendly um, it's not a button but it's a it's a line on one of their products or airlines offering offsets or any of any any online e-commerce company offering an offset Um, I'm curious from your perspective how you think about that in terms of both like a narrative perspective for people thinking about climate and its its actual impact
0: uh, I haven't seen the one from Amazon that you mentioned. I think in general, offsets don't work and they don't work practically. And we have pretty strong evidence on that from the research literature. They also, unfortunately, give people this kind of accounting mentality that justifies fundamentally unsustainable things that actually need to be reduced if we're going to tackle climate change and stop climate change. So in short, I'm not a fan. Um, what I do instead is take responsibility to reduce my own emissions as much as possible, which we've talked about, you know, flying, driving and, and plant-based diet are the big ones. Um, I, really like this idea of a future box, which is when you're going to spend money on fossil fuels, let's say you're going to buy a plane ticket or you're going to fill your car with gas, put an equal amount of money aside in a fund that you can do one of two things in. You can donate it to a, a group that's working for climate justice and especially supporting those who are most vulnerable And or you could use it to decarbonize your own emissions. So save up for a heat pump to switch out your gas furnace for, for example, or if you can't get rid of a car, uh, save up for an electric car instead of a gas car. And what that does is that it's not making this kind of uh, moral equivalent about, you know, it's recognizing every ton of carbon that I emit actually does cause harm and I can't undo that harm. It's not possible to undo that harm in my lifetime because some of that carbon will be in the atmosphere for 10,000 years from now and that's twice as long as Stonehenge or the Great Pyramids have been around. So I can't offset it. Um, Planting trees is great but a lot of the carbon in the atmosphere comes from previous deforestation. So planting trees is basically a way to start making up for deforestation that has already happened. It does not cancel out or offset burning fossil fuels. Now we basically have to completely stop burning fossil fuels to stop climate change. So I don't support offsets, but I do support trying to use your money for positive good without claiming that it's um, equivalent or it neutralizes the, the harm of, of burning fossil fuels Or focusing on, you know, I can't get rid of these emissions right now, but here I'm going to work to get rid of other emissions.
1: We'll definitely have to cover um, how you think about carbon avoidance versus carbon removal and and that world in in a future episode, uh, because we're absolutely going to run out of time. One of the things I appreciate in that fund where you're saving up for a heat pump, it also, one of the other corollaries to that is it recognizes that for a lot of people, fossil fuels is a requirement to live their daily life. And I think that there's a general, there's um, often a narrative of, not that I'm, Pro fossil fuels, but I'm I'm pro that you know climate change is um, in part is an impact on future generations. While there are plenty of people who require fossil fuels to not have impact today on their own life. Now, granted that like discounts biodiversity and uh, other aspects of climate and climate change, but um, there are individuals who need it um, to do their daily life, and I think that um, sometimes it's it's helpful just to share that message.
0: I mean, basically, we cannot humanity cannot keep producing and consuming fossil fuels. Um, that just has to completely stop. So yes, it is certainly the case that for many of us in today's world, we don't have options to completely divorce ourselves and get entirely independent of fossil fuels because we live in a system that has roads and hospitals and infrastructure we don't get to decide over that has uh, incentives and policies that we can't entirely dictate, of course, although we can affect the citizens. So, of course, I mean... I don't know anyone uh, who lives in modern society who has a completely fossil-free life. Um, That said, the way we're going to solve that problem and make this fast and fair transition is for those of us with the most resources. So kind of a quick test is, if you're over the average emissions for your country, you have a lot of room to reduce your own emissions. If you're at the average emissions for your country then system change maybe is the most effective place for you to focus your energy. Um, And certainly if you're low income and don't have the option to choose something that might be more expensive right now because the playing field is tilted to favor fossil fuels, it's completely unfair to expect you to do so. So that's why we need both system change and leadership from the historically highest emitters to reduce overconsumption. We're going to need both of those things.
1: Which is a great action for individuals who are listening. And we talked about community and doing 30-day challenges together as a group of people. You know, get together, figure out where you fall relative to that average. And then once you decide from there, kind of take that path and understand, you know, what are opportunities and have discussions with your friends and your family um, about the opportunities you can take. You know, we're working around the, your both your your history and your biography. And one of the themes or, uh, or the theme for season four of The Net Zero Life is how do you measure and how do you measure impact? And so, you know, take that any way you want. But as a climate scientist um, and an activist and uh, an author, how do you measure impact in terms of bringing the world closer to net zero emissions?
0: Yeah, that's on my mind a lot because ultimately the measure that the climate cares about is greenhouse gas emissions, right? To stop warming, humans have to completely stop adding carbon to the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases have to decline a whole heck of a lot. So the ultimate measure of success for me in terms of how much harm have I prevented, how much good things have I protected, is how much carbon have I kept out of the atmosphere. But that's really hard to measure. I mean, how many tons are saved by you and I having this conversation and the actions that your listeners take thereafter, I will never know. Um and i guess i've been trying to come around to of course you know i want spreadsheets and numbers and data but i what i'm starting to land on is that a theory of change to try and get to the world to net zero has to also accommodate something that recognizes there might be changes that wouldn't have happened without you but that doesn't mean that you were the only cause and that doesn't mean that you can exactly claim credit for a specific amount of it and i am starting to see that more and more like a, a recent example is with the passage of the um ira the big climate bill i saw bill mckibben who's a hero of mine a long time climate activist writer leader uh tweet at leah stokes a professor at santa barbara who was really active in analyzing and promoting the, the parts of the bill that eventually got passed you know she was <clears throat> tweeting about being excited about the the Good parts of the bill. And, you know, Bill McKibben said, it wouldn't have happened without you. And I don't think that means that, you know, she is singularly responsible and she alone would have been completely sufficient to entirely write and pass and negotiate this huge bill with, you know, thousands of moving pieces and so many people who are involved. But it also recognizes she played an essential role in making that happen. And she played the role that she could play. And let other people play the roles that they could play. So I guess that's quite a fuzzy answer to your question, but I'm trying to be satisfied with that. It has to also, I guess, be centered in what is it that I like doing and enjoy and get satisfaction and pleasure from, because I have to also be able to sustain it. So like, for example, if you look at algorithms, it seems like videos are what we should be doing to get the biggest user numbers, but I don't enjoy watching videos myself. So I don't want to make them because I think they're boring. (laughs) Whereas I do like podcasts and I listen to podcasts myself. So I'm really happy to be on podcasts because for me, it, it aligns with what I enjoy and I can feel good about contributing to it. So the people who make video more power to you, the world needs you it's not my strength and I'm happy that you're out there because there are lots of people who want to watch video for the people who want to listen to podcasts. That's more where I can contribute or who want to read stuff because I like to write. So, you know, I can't be only governed by numbers because then I would just be this like heartless machine chasing, um, the algorithm instead of actually creating stuff that I believe in and trying to enjoy while I'm doing it and make connections that I actually care about.
1: Yeah, and for those who don't know, Doctor Stokes has her own podcast. I believe it's called A Matter of Degrees, um, which everyone should go check out as well. Like Bill McKibben writes basically everywhere. He wrote a piece about on finance emissions in the Atlantic a few months ago, which uh, I highly recommend as well. We're wrapping up here, um, so let's maybe we'll move on to the short fire questions. But spend as much time as you'd like. You mentioned a few charities or non governmental organizations for individuals who fall into a bracket they're the effective altruists of the world. Um, Where do you recommend they spend their dollars? Or do you have a favorite climate-focused charity um, that people can contribute to?
0: Yes. um, Short answer, I really like 350.org. I think Climate Action Network does really good work. Um, I support uh, Give Directly, which is aiming at eliminating poverty. That's an effective altruism thing. Um, I am inspired by and impressed with a lot from the effective altruism movement. But the one thing I don't, personally totally resonate with is the focus on the cheapest possible ways of eliminating tons because i think uh, the eliminating climate pollution because i think that undervalues some of the citizen actions basically the grassroots and systemic change that we need from organizing and engaging as citizens and it over favors tech solutions which are already really heavily favored by the marketplace so i think it a little bit misdirects um resources
1: Absolutely, shout out Give Directly. I'm a huge fan as well. Um, are there any influential sustainability leaders that you follow on social media, or people that you view as sustainability
0: heroes? I mentioned Bill McKibben. I mean, he has been incredibly influential to me, and it was something that he wrote. Uh, I think it was in 2012. I would have to double check, but it was the title was um, "Climate Change Is Terrifying New Math," and it was in Rolling Stone. And he's actually the person who really made me understand the carbon budget and why it's so critical that we actually completely stop burning fossil fuels. And this was, you know, at this point I had a PhD and I was teaching graduate courses and I learned this from him. So I thought, wow, writing can really reach people and like digesting information and putting it in a clear way that people can relate to is super valuable. So he's been, yeah, a big inspiration to me. Hi, Bill.
1: In your book, you gave me my favorite definition of climate um, that I've ever read, which is climate is the the long-term average of weather in a specific location, which I had just never thought about before. And if that's like the factual definition, I should have just gone and looked it up in Merriam-Webster, then that's my bad. But reading in your book was the first thing that opened my eyes. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. I'm sure that is not in- originally my words, but I'm really glad that it resonated for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You were the conduit, which I received it. So credit is all yours. Um We talked about charities. We talked about influential leaders. We covered a number of books. um, But if there's any one book that you wish everyone could read or that's really influenced your thinking from the climate space, um, I'd love to hear it.
0: I'm really thinking. I mean, if there was one, I think I felt like, to be honest, I hadn't read the one book that did everything I wanted to do. And that is why I wrote my book. And I don't want to discredit other books out there. And I've read hundreds of climate books. There's many awesome ones. Um, But I felt like, especially coming from a scientist, I really hadn't read what I was looking for as a reader. So I guess having this personal storytelling angle that I hope makes it more approachable and digestible, and also having the rigor and the facts and a real focus on evidence and, and what works, that was the piece i was trying to contribute
1: yeah well and here's a plus one like everyone who hasn't yet go read under the sky we make you can either buy it yourself or you can get it from libby um, via your local library and with that i think one more question which is if people want to get in touch or follow your work what's the best way to do that
0: the best way is to subscribe to my newsletter which is over on substack it's called we can fix it on substack.com and that comes out once a month um it's a about an eight-minute read of the latest facts, feelings, and actions to tackle the climate crisis. Um, And there you'll also find the links to my website, my social media links. Um, So I think that's the best one-stop shop.
1: Dr. Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me, Nathan. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks again to Kimberly for joining us today. You can connect with her via her newsletter, wecanfixit.substack.com in the show notes. And you can also follow her on Twitter by following at K-A underscore Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, also in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net zero life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net zero life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is no way reflective of my employer and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Lovett, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Speed, and this is The Net Zero Life.